You're listening to the Grow Your Own Food Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you grow fresh fruit, vegetables, and even grains in your own backyard. In every episode, you'll get growing tips, recipe inspiration, and more. Ready to get growing? Then let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 77 of the Grow Your Own Food podcast. I'm your host, Jonna Smith, and today I am talking about my biggest lessons in the garden from 2020. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I like to wrap up every year with the things that have really stuck out the most in my mind, the biggest lessons that I've learned, not only because they help me plan next year's garden, but because they give me an opportunity to really dig into the science of why certain successes or failures happened, and then I get to share that knowledge, the things that I learned with you, helping to make you a better gardener in the process. At least I hope that's what happens, but... That's my goal. Anyway, so I'm going to be talking about the biggest things that I've learned this year. But first, a word from our sponsor. So I do want to start off this episode by saying that this is the last episode for 2020. I will be coming at you in 2021 with some more great topics, but you won't be hearing from me for a few weeks. Going to take a little bit of a break so that I can work on another exciting project that I have. And then also just unwind a little bit and focus on spending time with Mr. B and with my family. I want to be able to focus on that. I hope you're able to do a lot of that too. But yeah, let's jump into the biggest lessons from 2020. And... You know, when I talked about whether or not you're going to see family in person or um, virtually, it really kind of ties into this first lesson that I learned, and that is that dirt therapy is real, y'all. As the pandemic worsened and we all began to realize we'd be stuck at home for a lot longer than we'd originally thought, you know, Mr. B and I have been working from home since March, and we're really, really thankful not not only to have jobs, we're, we're very, very thankful for that, but we're also very thankful that we have jobs that have allowed us to work from home this whole time. Um, but it was just when things were starting to look really dark that my garden sprang to life, and I was so thankful um, because I have an anxiety disorder. It is one that I take medication for. It can be very debilitating if I'm not taking medication for it. And even though I do take medication, I still have some really hard days. And pandemics and anxiety disorders don't play well together. Um, so going out to the garden helped me stay sane. Looking for tiny little changes in sprouts and blossoms helped keep me in the moment and helped me not spiral into all the what-ifs and worst-case scenarios. Watching fruit ripen kept me hopeful and looking forward to the future. And growing my own food and thus having a relationship with it kept me from slipping into one of my really unhealthy coping mechanisms for anxiety, which is severe calorie restriction. I have, you know, recovered to the point that one can from an eating disorder. Anorexia used to be a really big problem for me, and severe calorie restriction was 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 what I would do when I was having really, really bad anxiety. It was just a way for me to 
exert control over my life. And I found that having a relationship with my food really kind of keeps me from from doing that, um, or at least doing that as badly. And honestly, all of this isn't in my head. You know, digging in dirt is actually very therapeutic. There's actually scientific evidence, and, and I have a link to an article about that in the sister post for this episode that's on my blog. So yet another reason why gardening is so, so good for you, that it can really mentally make you feel better. The second biggest lesson that I learned... <laughs> This year is the flip side of that, which is that gardening burnout is also real, (laughs) y'all. When I planned my 2020 garden back in December 2019, I had no idea what was coming, just like the rest of us. And so I planned my most ambitious garden to date, like more than 70 Yes, 70 different kinds of vegetables, fruits, flowers, and herbs. And man, was I super sorry I had done that about six months down the road. It got to the point where it stopped being therapeutic and it started being stressful. It was just one more thing that I had to worry about in a world where we already have enough to worry about. So I had to really learn that as far as your garden goes, it is okay to simplify. And in 2021, I am simplifying a lot. I'm growing fewer things. I'm opting to grow larger amounts of the things that we eat the most, things like garlic, onions, tomatoes, and peppers. I'm also letting go of things that I have a spotty track record with, things like sweet corn and sweet potatoes. And I'm choosing not to grow as many things that require constant vigilance for pests, like summer squash. Like I said, took me a few months to get to a point where I felt like this is okay, that I wasn't just being lazy, that I really could use a break. And, and honestly, now that I'm there at that point, I really find that I'm much more looking forward to next year's garden. So if that is at all you know, how you started to feel toward the end of the gardening season this year, just know that it's okay to simplify. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in needing a break at all. So we're going to start to get really specific now. And the third lesson that I learned in 2020 about gardening is that roly-polies, otherwise known as pill bugs, some people call them sow bugs, are not always your friend. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for these little armadillo-like insect. You know, they're those little tiny gray sectioned insects that if you disturb them, they curl up really tight into a little ball and you can roll them around in your hand. I used to play with them very gently as a kid and I, I would love watching how they would curl up and then if you just sat still long enough, they would relax and unfurl in your hand and crawl around. They were so serene and cute, so adorable. Plus they're fascinating. They're actually kind of like less of an insect and more of a crustacean if you read about them. And they do play a helpful role in the garden. Roly-polies, pill bugs, whatever you want to call them, they do play a helpful role. They help break down dead plant matter, which helps it decompose much faster. But too many of them in the garden can become a nuisance. Like when you have a really dry gardening season, like I did, And you make the mistake of thinking roly-polies won't bother your tender little seedlings, like I did. 
Because roly-polies, like I said, are basically a form of land crustacean. They like moist environments, right? Crustaceans live in water. And while it's pretty much true that they pose no threat to mature plants, mature plants, you know, they have woody or fibrous plant tissue, and roly-polies have zero interest in that or next to zero interest in that. Um, They would much rather feed on the soft sort of decaying plant matter that's on and in and around the soil. But if there's no rain and there's not enough moisture in the garden overall, roly-polies will actually get what they need moisture-wise from eating tender young seedlings. So if you go out and you transplant your seedlings um, any time of the year, really, doesn't really matter, um, you go out and you transplant your seedlings and you can't find anything on them, Um, you know, you can't find slugs, you can't find bugs, Look at the base in the dirt for roly-polies, especially during the day. They tend to come out when the temperatures cool, when there's a little bit more moisture in the air in the evening. That's when they tend to come out and feed on your seedlings overnight, which is why you will almost never see them doing it. So I learned very quickly that sprinkling diatomaceous earth Um, otherwise known as DE, around any seedlings newly set into the garden was a must-do part of my transplanting process. And as my roly-poly population seems to be growing in my garden, I might just buy some Sluggo Advanced. So Sluggo is an organic pest control option that helps deal with slugs, and the advanced formulation of Sluggo um, also helps control the population of roly-polies or at least keeps them from eating your plants. So that is something that I learned this year. You know, even though roly-polies have a helpful, a beneficial role in the garden, they can be damaging as well. Lesson number four, apple trees can actually get too old to perform well, even if well cared for. You guys, I did not know this, and there might be some of you who know a lot about apple trees. Um, You may already know that apple trees can get too old, but after several years in our house, like, I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with our apple tree. It bore fruit really well for the first few years we lived here. Like, think branches having to be propped up because they were so heavy with fruit, even though I thinned the fruit. Whereas now, a harvest is almost wholly out of the question. As the years have passed, as harvest you know, has grown less and less dependable. And we have had our share of pest problems like Japanese beetles and fungus like seed or apple rust. But even though we've applied organic preventative measures and we've pruned conservatively and only in the winter, the tree has just continued to decline. So I looked into it, did some research, and lo and behold, apple trees can get too old to bear fruit reliably, especially if they weren't very well cared for in the past, which Ours was not by the previous homeowner. And if they aren't very large or strong as a result of that mismanagement, and and ours is not very large or very strong. At the moment, we can't decide if we should cut down and replace the apple tree or if we should just leave it for wildlife. Maybe we can find a a way to do both. Um, at least for a time, we shall see. But that is definitely a big thing that I that I had to learn is that that apple trees kind of had a have a a clock, you know, as far as really high productivity goes. Lesson number five: edible landscaping is fun, but only if you have a lot of patience. And I do not. Or you know, I only have the amount of patience that gardening 
has taught me. It's definitely something that has helped enrich my store of patience. But edible landscaping really tested it this year. I love the ideas of permaculture and edible landscaping. So this past year, we put in a lot of berry bushes that would serve both a functional purpose and a culinary purpose. We put thorny blackberry seedlings on the side of the house to serve as sort of like a natural security system, kind of like a a deterrent around the windows at the basement level of our house. And then we also put a line of elderberry bushes in the backyard to help us build up sort of like a sound wall, a sound barrier from the road noise behind the house. It was, I was so, so excited about these things, but holy smokes, fruit bushes tend to grow really slow, especially blackberries. I mean, I knew this, of course, but my frame of reference, I was so used to annual plants that grow from a seed and they grow super huge and flower and fruit all in one year. Berry bushes, on the other hand, take their sweet time. No pun intended, It's totally true. They are in no hurry. So if you love the idea of edible landscaping, just know that when it comes to fruit bushes, you literally won't be reaping the fruits of your labor for quite some time, at least not a lot. Probably not for the first year for blackberries. We had a few elderberries the first year, but even in the second year, you probably won't get very many blackberries. Elderberries I am hoping for for a larger crop in 2021. Lesson number six, fall greens are totally worth the late summer babying. Back in August and September, when I was constantly sprinkling diatomaceous earth everywhere to keep the roly-polies and the slugs off and putting milk jugs on everything to keep everything else off, I honestly wasn't sure whether all the effort was worth it. But I'm here to tell you now that there's just something about peeling back a frost blanket on a 30-degree day to reveal a patch of these beautiful, lush, emerald-colored salad greens when everything else is dead and brown that feels so magical and so amazing, I would totally recommend it to any and all of you. A little tip, though, that I learned. Spinach seedlings will be gone in a matter of hours if planted out when the weather is still very warm. Like I said, you've got slugs, you've got pill bugs, aka roly-polies. You've got tons of other things that will eat your spinach leaves. They're just, they're too sweet and tender for those pests to pass up. You're much better off waiting until it's much cooler to transplant or sow them directly in the ground in late August, early September. And then hopefully by the time they get big enough for something to notice, it's much cooler outside and those bug populations will be much lower. Your spinach is going to grow a lot more slowly as the weather cools than it did in the summer, but it's better than nothing, right? And if you grow several plants, that, that all adds up. Also, another thing I learned when it comes to fall greens... Pests don't seem to like romaine lettuce, like at all. I had zero problems with slugs or pill bugs or roly-polies, whatever you want to call them. And I would 100% recommend it not just as a fall green, as, as a salad green in your garden. It grows incredibly fast, very well, very few pest problems. In fact, I ended up with too much of it because I, I figured I was going to end up with you know, losing some of it to pests. And that didn't happen. And now we have romaine coming out of our ears. But it's a good problem to have. Lesson number seven that I learned. Brassica 
varieties in spring and fall really truly do matter. So I know I mentioned previously in a podcast episode about broccoli growing tips that I was excited to see if varieties bred specifically for certain weather conditions or seasons would make a marked difference in my harvests. And holy cow, do they ever. This year I planted a variety of broccoli that was supposed to do especially well in the fall. And I got the biggest broccoli harvest I have ever had. You know, usually my big broccoli harvest is in the spring, but man, this this broccoli was way above and beyond that that harvest that I got in the spring from some random plants that I bought at the nursery because frost killed the plants that I had originally grown from seed. And it's funny because on the other hand, you know, the Brussels sprouts and the cauliflower that I didn't buy season-specific varieties for because I I still had seed left and I didn't want to spend the money, they're out there right now. And they're still limping along, but there's no harvest in sight, especially for the cauliflower. I've got these tiny little button heads, and they feel like they have not grown at all in the past, I would say, month. The Brussels sprouts are coming along, but not very quickly, even though I have been watering them and fertilizing them whenever, you know, the the weather has been warm enough for me to do so. So I learned my lesson and I bought some season-specific varieties for both cauliflower and Brussels sprouts next year, and I'm really excited to see how those go. Lesson number eight, despite all of these successes with fall crops, I still have some things to learn about fall crops, namely legumes. As the days get shorter, the sun is lower in the sky, and so getting enough sunlight to peas and beans can actually be kind of difficult, especially when they're still really low to the ground. So you really have to make sure that wherever you're putting them in the fall, they have plenty of sunlight. And timing is also much, much more critical for legumes. I was 100% sure that if I planted cannellini beans in mid-July with my popcorn, you know, I had this grand plan that the cannellini beanie, the clean, no, nope, 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 Shauna, the cannellini beans um, would grow up with my popcorn and the vines would climb up the popcorn, which it did, that part worked really well, but I thought that they would have plenty of time to ripen. Well, The popcorn ripened just fine, more on that in the next lesson, but the cannellini beans didn't reach their full potential. In fact, they probably needed uh, at least another month to grow, but I couldn't give them that because the weather, it just got too cool, and beans do not like cool weather. They slow down in their growth way, way too much, um, so they just don't mature as quickly as they do in the summertime. Now, we ate them anyway, or we're eating them anyway. I took them, and I cut them up, and I processed them just like I would green beans and vacuum-sealed them in the freezer. But my hope for big, fat, dried white beans that I would turn into, like, a a super satisfying, like, savory cassoulet or something like that this winter were sadly dashed. So, you know, oh, well, I learned my lesson for next year about when to plant things like peas and beans in the fall. Next lesson, sweet corn is out, popcorn is in. Popcorn might as well be a food group for me. In fact, I've told Mr. B multiple times during this pandemic that 
I want to go to a movie theater just to buy a giant tub of popcorn and walk right back out. Like, I don't even care about seeing the movie. I just want, I just want movie popcorn. I haven't ended up doing that because that's, that's not really a, a good excuse, um, you know, to go out in, in public when there's a pandemic raging. But I did end up growing my own popcorn and holy cow, it did so much better than I ever could have imagined from 20 stocks. And 20 stocks, you know, your average corn stock will only give you one to three. And three is like really, really optimistic, guys. It's more like one to two ears of corn per stock. From 20 stocks, I got two whole quart-sized jars of popcorn, which is enough to last me several months, if not close to a year, which honestly is good because that's about as long as popcorn is good for. After that, it gets too dry to pop. It has to have a certain moisture content to be able to pop. Now, since I can't get the raccoons that are constantly eating the sweet corn in my garden under control without some sort of super expensive electric fence setup, and since we eat way more popcorn than sweet corn in our house, I plan to dedicate 100% of my corn space to popcorn in the future. That's how we're rolling here. Last lesson, lesson number 10. Cover crops are a really cool idea, but they're just really not feasible in a home vegetable garden. So let me explain what cover crops are first. If you're an organic gardener, there's no doubt you've read about the concept of cover crops where you let a bed or a plot of land lie fallow, otherwise known as empty, save for nitrogen-rich legumes like clover or grasses like winter rye or barley. The idea is those cover crops grow and then they're either killed by winter cold or you plow them under in spring right before they bloom. Then, as the nitrogen-rich plant matter decomposes, your soil is sort of pumped full of nutrients and ready to take on the next crop that you plant there. So that's how cover cropping works. And it's a fantastic concept for organic farmers. Really, you know, there's tons of farmers out there new agey farmers that are trying it and loving it and getting really great results. But in a home vegetable garden where you have limited growing space, it's not very practical. Trust me, I've tried it. The problem is timing. There's just not enough time for the winter-killed plant matter to be tilled in and break down before you need to plant in spring. And there's definitely not time for waiting until right before something like clover blossoms, which is when it's most nitrogen rich, to then till it in and, tr and transplant or sow your crops. The clover doesn't bloom here in Kansas until late May. And by that time, I've had my last seedlings in the ground for two weeks, my stuff like my tomatoes and peppers. And my earliest seedlings, like my brassicas, have been in the ground for two months at that point. So I, you know, if I'm not gonna grow things or start things in the ground until after I till under my cover crops, I just, I wouldn't be able to plant anything. Now, if you have a really big garden, say like a few acres, and so you're able to have places where you can rotate crops out to while your beds from last year build back up, please, by all means, try cover cropping because, like I said, organic farmers are getting amazing results. But 
From my experience, with eight raised beds that I carefully plan and time plantings in to make the most of the space I have, it's just not feasible. You're kind of better off relying on things like compost, fish fertilizer, blood meal, bone meal, those kinds of things to to enrich your soil. And then obviously also when you clean up for the season, not pulling the plants out by the roots, but instead cutting them off at soil surface and leaving the roots in there to let the roots, you know, all the nutrients and the nitrogen that's stored in the roots to decompose and break down and, and feeding the soil that way. So kind of kind of better off doing that with a home vegetable garden than, than trying your effort at, at cover crops. So, oh, those are all the things. I mean, I, I definitely learned more things this year, but I feel like those were the biggest kind of eye-opening things for me. And those were the things that I really wanted to share most with you as a result. So I hope you learned a few things. I hope that at least one of those things is helpful in, in helping you you know, plan your garden for next year. I am so very thankful for, you know, the opportunity to see all these things, learn all these things, share them with you. I'm so thankful for all of you who continue to download and listen to these episodes. I think it's it's so amazing that I have this opportunity to share the stuff that I learn with you guys and, and that you guys are even interested in learning it. I just appreciate it so much. So like I said, this is the last episode for the year. I'll be back in January. Until then, thank you so much. If you haven't signed up for my semi-monthly newsletter, so I do send out a newsletter every other week and I have completely jazzed that up. I'm super excited about it. That's also going to be coming out in January. The new version of the newsletter will be coming out, and it's going to be even more jam-packed with information and more helpful with, with each issue that comes out. I'm excited for you guys to see that, too. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, please go to beeandbasil.com, sign up to receive the newsletter. I promise I don't ever spam folks. That's just not my jam. And you'll get to see all that fun, cool content in the new year as well. So thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. No matter how you celebrate or how you choose to celebrate, I hope you stay safe and healthy. And I hope the same for your friends and family as well. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to the Grow Your Own Food podcast. Visit beeandbasil.com for helpful how-to articles, images, and recipes.